Okay, I'm going to show that I'm losing my mind. Did somebody get a read tonight for scripture reading, or am I just going to read it? Okay, I'm just going to read it then. I just, I, I looked up and I was like, now who's reading right now? And then I couldn't remember. It's because there's nobody. It's because I'm doing it. Yeah, that's fine. We're good. I just didn't want to do that thing where somebody's going, it's supposed to be Okay, if you got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to continue our study in Luke. Um, we are looking at the story of the transfiguration. And so uh, I know I say this a lot, and I usually mean it, but, man, I love this passage, right? Like, I, it's one of my favorites. Um, it's it's so – there's such cool stuff going on in this passage. Um, and so we got a long way to go in a short time to get stuff there. So let me let me uh, read the passage for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll, we'll jump into it. So starting in verse 28, it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in, at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw this, his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything that they had seen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, as we, as we open up your word, Father, we pray that, uh, that you would shine a light on this text, God, that we would see, see the, um, beauty and the, uh, God, the way it's interconnected to, to so many things throughout the rest of scripture. Um, God, that you would use this to to make us see your son better, God, to to increase our faith in him, um, God, and to, um, God, just to give us a clearer picture of your scripture and and, and uh, why you have included this story in, in Luke. Father, we acknowledge that um, we cannot do those things on our own. Um, just as we cannot worship rightly on our own, God, we must... Uh, we cannot understand your word outside of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. And so we pray that you would help us to do that. God, apply these things to our hearts. Um, make us see this passage um, uh, for the truth that is found there, God, and let us live our lives in light of it. God, we thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we got a long way to go in a short time to get there because I have, as I've, I've got a longer sermon than normal, okay? And so I'm just going to, I'm going to try not to get extemporaneous all of a sudden, like I'm going to try to get in to just go, okay, because we've got, we've got a long one tonight. So, um, so there is, there are certain events in the life of Jesus, right, that uh, draw particular emphasis, right? We, that's, that we, we know that that's the way it should be. The, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, like it's obvious that we should put special focus on those uh, uh, passages, um, sometimes, though, uh, we, we, we might look to a couple of other key incidents in, in the life of Jesus, maybe his ascension, maybe his baptism, um, as, as, as pivotal moments in his life. But I think sometimes an event that gets forgotten is the transfiguration, all right? Um, but it is, it is it, not as important necessarily in terms of, say, the cross and the resurrection, things like that, but key to understanding Jesus and the flow of this narrative and, and what's going on uh, in, in the grander picture uh, of Scripture. And so here's the thing. I mean, it's a strange passage, okay? I, I think sometimes what we forget is we're so used to these stories, right? If you've been a believer for any amount of time and you've read these stories before, you forget how weird they are, okay? Like this is a strange thing that happens in this passage. And it's even strange for the book of Luke. Like it feels out of step a little bit. Like we've been going, you know, miracle and, and teaching and parable and miracle and teaching like that. And all of a sudden the transfiguration happens. And so it's an incredible passage full of significance, full of connections to God's working throughout both Testaments. 
And so again, we got a lot here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by kind of doing like a, a simple kind of who, what, when, where kind of, kind of look at the passage. And then we'll talk about the why at the end, like why these things are included, um, what Jesus meant to accomplish by them. Okay. So the first thing is the who. Okay. So who do we see in this passage? It says in verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. All right. So, so again, this is that inner circle that we talk about all the time. This is that group of people who Jesus has brought in and has unique, um, ministry opportunities and unique focuses of leadership for these guys, right? We saw that with Jairus's daughter. He brought only these three guys in when he raised her from the dead. We're going to see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to go uh, step aside to pray, but he's going to bring these three guys with him, um, and then he's going to actually pull further out from them. Uh, just all these different kind of little special places where he seems to have a unique focus on these three three guys. Sometimes Andrew gets thrown in, but usually it's these three. And so here's something that I think that we can say about that. We've talked about all kinds of stuff with that model, right? So we've talked about how Jesus' model of discipleship with his disciples is something that we should probably try to figure ways of implementing that into our life. Jesus is a one. He has this group of 12. He has a group of three. And then he has a best friend who is John. That's a neat way of thinking about our lives too, right? That we can have sort of a group of 12 people that we're engaging with in a certain focused way. And then maybe a smaller group within that. And then probably somebody who is, who is as close as a brother or a best friend on top of that. And maybe the question we ask first is why these three guys, right? What is it special about these three guys um, that, that Jesus would pull them aside? Okay. And I think we notice this certainly Peter and John, along with Paul, um, are probably the three most significant leaders of the early church, right? They're the three guys who are most significant in terms of leadership. James becomes the first martyr among the apostles, right? So we have these, the, we have these different characters who are, who are obviously, um, God has had a special role of leadership in, in mind for them. And I'm not sure if this is always how it works, but I wonder if it is not the case that God gives a special glimpse of himself to those who he intends to use for extraordinary purposes. Okay. Um, Cause I think we see that in this passage. I think you can look throughout history and see different people and the, and, and the way they've connected to God, that, that, that is the case sometimes. Okay. And so that's the, that's the who, what about the when, when did this take place? Well, we just get this one little phrase. It says now about eight days after these sayings, so what sayings is he referring to? Well, he's referring to what we just covered the last two weeks, the bomb that Jesus dropped on the disciples. And that was at the first thing, I'm going to be rejected and suffer and die. And then the second thing is, if you want to follow me, that is probably going to be your destiny as well. So like worst marketing tour in history, right? Okay, like if you're trying to recruit people in, that doesn't seem like the best way to do it. And that event, that notice that so so the so the timing, the win of this passage, it's relating what's going on to those that message, right? Okay. So it's not really concerned with what season it is or anything like that. It's saying, when did these things happen? Eight days after he said those things. Eight days after he dropped that bomb. Okay. And that that you have to think about the fact that these disciples have been thinking about this, right, for a week now. And I, I have a feeling that they would be sort of spiritually, emotionally exhausted with these things, right? Like wondering, what have we got ourselves into? Is this something that we are really willing to to step out and do? Imagine for yourself, when we started this church, some of you guys have been here since we started. Imagine if when I had gone out, you know, with those first meetings that I had with some of y'all and said, hey, you want to come be a part of this church we're starting? If I had said, oh, and by the way, I'll probably be dead within five years, murdered by the community, and you guys probably will too. Like, what would you have done? Would you have said, yeah, man, Ash, I'm on board with that church? Or would you have said, I think I'm just going to go home and go back to fishing or farming or whatever it was I was doing? It's a big deal um, what Jesus has said the real Messiah has come to do and what discipleship is going to cost these people, all right? Where? Where does this take place? Well, they went up on a mountain to pray. We don't, it doesn't tell us any more specifically about that, 
We don't know what mountain it is. He hasn't named the mountain. The traditional site for the mountain, uh, if you if you have gone look throughout church history and gone on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, they would have taken you to Mount Tabor as as the mountain uh, that the transfiguration happened. It's in the northern part of the country. If you remember the way the story played out, the 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 who do people say that I am passage that we we talked about a couple weeks ago that happened in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is in the very northern corner of the nation of Israel. Okay, um, it's actually a sort of the pagan area. They had moved out of national uh, Jewish area and moved into sort of a more Greco-Roman pagan area. And so we assume that Jesus is still in that region, and Mount Tabor is in that region. Here's the only problem: archaeologists have kind of discovered. That A, uh, first off, they just looked at the mountain and went, that's only 588 feet, uh, meters tall. Doesn't seem like a very big, much of a mountain, right? And so, um, then also they discovered that they believed there was a military installation of the Romans on Mount Tabor during the time of Christ, okay? So that would also not make sense for the fact that it would be there. It also seems to be kind of in the wrong direction, like they're, to go to Mount Tabor, they would have to go further and further away from Israel. And so it doesn't make a lot of sense. Another option is Mount Hermon, not 588 meters, but 2,800 meters high, right? So that makes, that's a, it's a bigger, more significant mountain. And it could be that mountain, okay? But notice it doesn't tell us the name of the mountain. And even that eight day comment doesn't really tell us how far or a range. It just says that eight days after those events, they went to this mountain, right? So we assume it's in a relatively short amount of time, but man, it could be, this could be weeks, months later or something like that. Probably not, but but here's why I think that's um, maybe important. There are significant connections between this story, the themes of this text, and two stories from the Old Testament. First, Moses at Sinai. And second, Elijah at Mount Horeb. Okay? Now, the importance is twofold. Number one, um, and we'll talk about this more in just a second, those are the same mountains. Sometimes we miss that. Sometimes just studying your Bible, you don't realize the case. Sinai and Horeb, the place that Moses goes and the place that Elijah goes, is the same place, okay? This place that we think is down on the tip of, of the, the Arabian Peninsula uh, or the Sinai Peninsula. But the importance um, for us is, is not exactly where the mountain is, although there's significance there, but that it's on a mountain, okay? Uh, and being on a mountain this way and having the events that take place, that draws our attention to certain things in the Old Testament, or should Okay, well, what happens when they're up there? All right, well, verse 29 says, and he was praying. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Mark says it like this, which is a little funnier. He was transformed in front of them and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Okay, which is just sort of an odd thing to say, right? But to say that, this was a supernatural something, right? The guys weren't praying and then Jesus put on like a really nice clean tunic and they looked up and they were like, oh, wow, you look so great, Jesus, you're all cleaned up. Like, no, this was something supernatural that was happening, okay? Um, and, and, and what we've come to call it is that he was transfigured before them, right? Jesus was transfigured. So what happened? What was going on in that like, what was it that happened? So we know Jesus is human, right? Jesus is God also, um, but he is human. He has a human body like ours, a physicality like ours, right? Jesus had uh, crooked teeth and, and acne and greasy hair and stinky armpits like everybody does, okay? But all of a sudden in this moment, Jesus doesn't look like that anymore, right? All of a sudden in this mo- moment, Jesus begins to shine. It tells us for a moment that physicality of Jesus, that body that he has is something different than anything that we've known before. Purity, brilliance, glory is emanating from him. So, so what is this, right? What's going on? Well, there's different explanations for what we're actually seeing in this place. 
Perhaps it is a glimpse of this idea that we see in 1 Corinthians 15 of this incorruptible flesh, right? That we are all going to have one day in the resurrection. That all of us one day are going to put on this new flesh that is is still going to be a physical body, but it's going to be a different physical body than anything that we have currently experienced. I mean, this scene is like, it's, it's not like anything else that we see in the scriptures, right? It's not like the resurrection. When Jesus is resurrected, do you remember what happens on several occasions? It says that Jesus is mistaken as a gardener. Uh, he's mistaken as a fellow traveler on the road. He's the, the, the disciples are out fishing and they see just a man sitting on the side of the sea uh, building a fire or whatever. Jesus isn't glowing in any of those stories, okay? He just seems to be basically like a normal person after the resurrection. This is something different. Only in the book of Revelation do we see something approaching this imagery with the second coming of Christ uh, and, 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 and some of the things we talked about, I talked about back in around Christmas. The, re, the Christ is, is revealed in all of his glory. He is in, in, in his exaltation, right? He is seen for who he really is, I guess you could say. Not that he's not who he really is in the flesh, but he's seen for more than that. And if that weren't weird enough, the story gets even stranger because all of a sudden out of nowhere, Moses and Elijah show up. Who just in case you're, you don't know your history very well, they've been dead a really long time. Okay? Verse 30, and behold, two men were walking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Spoke of his departure. That's sort of this enigmatic kind of phrase. And we know what he's talking about. We know the departure that he is, they are speaking to Jesus about. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But here's the question. Why Moses and Elijah? Why are they the two people that show up in this passage? Because there's all kinds of other people, right? Big, important characters from the Old Testament could be here. Abraham could have been here. Noah could have been here. Uh, Any number of prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel. Um, Why is it that these two guys show up? Oftentimes it's talked about the idea that they represent the law and the prophets, okay? Moses represents the law, obviously. uh, uh, Elijah represents the prophets. And maybe there's some truth to that, but I think there's a lot more that we see in that, okay? This is the first thing. The reason why it's the two of them is because of the eschatological hope that those two characters represent, okay? Eschatological meaning in time. Right, The idea of this, the end, the end times, the fact that both of these two people play heavily into um, those hopes in the Old Testament. So first off, Elijah. We've talked about this already. Elijah is to come before the Messiah, right? Um, John the Baptist is Elijah. He's not, he's not a reincarnation of Elijah or something like that, but he is the, he is the new Elijah, you could say, okay? Um, in, uh, in, in Malachi, Look, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, okay? So the Elijah had this connection to the coming of the Messiah and to, to the end times, all right? And here's the deal. Moses did too. So if you look there on your bulletin back at the, uh, the scripture reading at the very beginning, the scriptural meditation at the very beginning of the bulletin, this is in Deuteronomy 18. And so it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you Uh, raised up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses speaking, from among your own brothers, you must listen to him. This is what you requested from the Lord your God, where? At Mount Horeb, right? There's Mount Sinai, that's what we're talking about. From God at Mount Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see his great fire uh, any longer so that we will not die. Then the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my word that he speaks in my name. Man, that's Jesus if you're you're not paying attention, right? He's talking about the coming of Jesus in that passage. And so obviously Moses gives this prophecy that, that connects him very closely to the coming of Jesus. So I think part of the reason why these two guys are there is because of that, that end times eschatological hope. But it's not just that. There's more to it. Because both of these two men, or you could call them, they're both men of the mountain. 
all right? Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. It's the same place, and both of these guys have specific connections there. Exodus 24 is Moses' story. Elijah uh, is in 1 Kings 19. In both cases, they go to the mountain, and they receive a vision from God, right? They see God. God manifests himself to them in some sort of way, um, and they get a message from God. And so here's the deal. This, this is kind of, this is my, my drawing it back to those two mountains, okay? I want to believe that where the mountain of transfiguration is, is Mount Sinai. I want to believe that the place that Jesus and the disciples went to was all the way to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, right? The same place that Elijah and Moses had been, okay? The thing is, is that it's it, it's hard to make that work in the text, okay? Because here's the deal. Again, if you don't know your ge- geography, um, uh, northern Israel, Sea of Galilee, is about 500 miles or something like that from Mount Sinai. Uh, the Bible tells us that Elijah, when he left after the, the prophets of Baal incident, it took him 40 days to get to Mount Horeb, okay? And so, again, that's not that possibility is not eliminated from the text. All we know is that eight days after he said these things, they went to a mountain to pray. So it could have been a 40, you know, it could have been a big gap or whatever. It's probably not, but, man, I want it to be, okay? I want it to be that place because that makes it all connect all the better in this passage. But I think the deal is, is this, even if he's not there, even if he's on a different mountain, that's exactly what we're meant to think, right? We are meant to draw our attention back to these two incidents, Elijah at the mountain and, and Moses at the mountain. Here's a, here's a fun little fact, and, and, and I'm not the only one who has drawn that connection, certainly through history. At the base of Mount Sinai, there is a monastery, right? So the, 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 the mountain that we believe is, is the mountain of the Ten Commandments, the mountain that Elijah went up on. Uh, at the bottom of that mountain in, in Sinai Peninsula is a monastery called St. Catherine's Monastery. It's a Greek Orthodox monastery, and it is a fascinating place. It is one of the oldest continually used monasteries in the entire world, founded in the 500s. It has been in use since then. It is the oldest continually used library in the entire world, is that is at uh, St. Catherine's. Some of the greatest treasures of Christian art and iconography reside there, all right? Um, it, it was the home of some of the most important textual manuscripts of the Bible, right? So the oldest, most important, most complete manuscripts of the scriptures that we have, many of them were housed at St. Catherine's for years. It has never, part of the deal why all these things have survived is because it has never been sacked, in its 1,500 years of, of, of existence. You want to know why? Because they have a letter from Muhammad at St. Catherine's where Muhammad basically went, this is a special place. I'm going to sign a letter that says, don't anybody burn this place down. And he gave it to him. And so this Christian monastery, now some people say, that's ah, not real. It's, it's just something they created to protect themselves. Well, it worked, okay? Because for 1,500 years, nobody has burned this place to the ground and stole all their stuff. Now, here's the cool thing, I think. In the church, on the monastery, uh, there's a dome, right? You, you, you've seen churches like this. You go to the front, and there up in the center of the church is a big dome, okay? And on that dome is this beautiful mosaic, all right? Guess what the mosaic is of? Base of Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments? Nope. Burning bush? Nope. Elijah in the whirlwind or something like that? Nope. The picture on that dome is the transfiguration. Okay? And so whoever did it, they got it too. They said, I don't know that Jesus was here, but this place obviously has connections to that story. All these things are coming together in this place. Okay, one more weird thing that happens in this passage. Peter says, can I set up three tents? Okay, verse 32. Now, Peter and those who were with him uh, were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, the two men who stood with him. And as they were parting from him, that's key, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah not knowing what he said. Okay, so what's going on here? And again, a weird thing 
a weird little little uh, little detail in there. Okay, so some com- commentators think that there's something again in time significant here because the word tent is the same word for tabernacle. Okay, they're the same word. And so some people, when they read that passage, in fact, I think some translations even translate it, let us set up three tabernacles, okay? They think there's some sort of end time significance there. Like basically what Peter is doing is he's saying, we're, we're, we're setting up the new kingdom of God on earth. And it's beginning right here with this tabernacle, just like it before the temple, um, the meeting place where God would come down, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant was stored was the tabernacle. We're starting that again. We're creating this, this tabernacle here, and, and that's why the word is used and all these things like that. That's a cool idea. I don't think that's what's going on, okay? And, and the reason is, is because we're told why Peter says it. And the answer is because he didn't know what else to say, okay? Um, uh, Mark basically says he, he He's terrified, like he's awestruck. Um, he is dumbfounded by the things he's seeing. That makes sense, right? If you're standing there and Jesus starts to shine and all of a sudden out of the mist walk Elijah and Moses, you would kind of be at a loss for words probably too. And that's exactly what happens. But I think there's something more there, okay? The fact that Peter would say these things, why would he say, it says, when he saw them leaving, he said, Lord, let us put up some tents so that Moses can stay, and Elijah can stay, and you can stay. What's going on there? I think it's saying something about Peter's heart. It's saying something about all our hearts, probably, in a way. So here's the deal. So that's the that's the who, what, when, where, okay? Now the why. Why is this passage in here? What's going on in all this stuff? Okay, well, here's the first thing. The transfiguration is a turning point in Jesus' ministry. It is a turning point. So here's something that we notice. It's after the transfiguration, just a little bit further down in the Gospel of Luke, and later on in chapter 9, same chapter, just a little bit further, that we are told for the first time that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Okay? He set his face towards Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means for the first time, Jesus is now saying, it's time, and I know where I have to go, and I know what I have to do. So the transfiguration basically kind of becomes a commissioning in a way for Jesus. Jesus, I think, has always known ultimately his mission. Um, and yet for a time, he was able to keep that out ahead of him, right? For a time, he was able to say, it's not right now. I've still got some time left before these events um, start to to cascade, before they start to av- avalanche or whatever. Um, I don't have to... I don't have to do that yet, but now the time has come. And so fittingly, Moses and Elijah show up to talk with him about his departure. And where does that departure take place? It takes place, it says, in Jerusalem. It's obviously talking about his death and his resurrection and, and, and eventually his ascension. These two guys show up, and man, this is part of the beauty of this passage, I think. These two people, Moses and Elijah, who in their own times had longed for a Messiah. They had longed for the consolation of Israel. They had longed to see the kingdom of God on earth, but they had both been denied it in different ways. Moses, you remember what happened with Moses? Looking down from Mount Nebo because of his sin at Meribah was not allowed to go into the promised land. And so this place that he had worked for and this, this, this kingdom of God um, that, that was going to be established, Moses never gets to go into it. He only gets to stand on the mountain and look at it from a distance. Elijah, desperately anticipating uh, God's overthrow of evil. Right, desperately anticipating the revival of the people of God and a return from paganism back to the worship of the one true God. Um, desperately desiring to see the kingdom manifest. And yet what happens with Elijah? As he treks all those 40 days and 40 nights to get down to Sinai, and what does God say? He says, it's not going to happen right now. There's still a remnant. There's still 7,000 who have not bended the knee to to Baal, but you're not going to see what you hope for, Elijah. It's not going to be this vast revival when the nation come back to God. That's not what you're going to get in your lifetime. But guess what? Now they get to see it. 
Now they get to see Jesus standing in front of them, the sum of all of their hopes. And all of a sudden, they understand the plan, or at least I like to think they do. They understand why it couldn't have happened in their own time. They understand why it had to be held off till the appointed time when Jesus would come. And so Jesus being here at this transfiguration, Jesus having a Moses and Elijah show up is, is a commissioning for him. And you notice, notice how similar this passage is to what happened at Jesus' other commissioning, which was his baptism. Remember his baptisms? What were the words that were heard when Jesus was baptized and, and the spirit descended like a dove? This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Here, a similar thing happens, right? As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to me. Right? That cloud, I think, is the Shekinah, right? That cloud is the physical manifestation of God that we see throughout the Old Testament. It is the cloud that led the Israelites out of Egypt. It is the cloud that descended on the tabernacle. It is the cloud that descended on the temple. It is the cloud, the physical manifestation of God that had not been seen in Israel in a thousand years since Solomon had had rebuilt the temple in his era. Not since then had God descended in that way, that form. And now this voice comes from the cloud. God talking directly to his people. The human people sitting on earth hearing the audible voice of God in the cloud. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So again, what we see is that Jesus' baptism was a commissioning for his ministry in many ways. But this passage is a commissioning for Jesus' death. It is commissioning for the cross. It is a commissioning for his sacrifice. The baptism and the transfiguration are twin passages. And again, they're twin passages with, with uh, Moses' story in Exodus and Elijah's and Kings. But it's not just a commissioning, I think, for Jesus. It's also in many ways a commissioning for the disciples. Certainly for those three. It becomes a justifying glimpse of where this is all going, okay? Because again, think about this. These guys have been told eight days earlier, the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that you thought he was going to be. He's not the conquering king Messiah. He is the Messiah who is rejected, mocked, persecuted, and killed. And then Jesus says, you follow me, and the same thing will happen to you. Uh, you will take up your cross, we talked about last week, you will be rejected, mocked, persecuted, and killed. The same thing is going to happen to you. And so here's the deal. Again, when, when Jesus says these things, I have to think that if I were sitting there, I would go, man, is that it? Like, is that all we have to look forward to? Is that all that, that the Christian life is? is? Is we follow you, Jesus, and it's, it's misery and persecution and torture and death? Like, is that what this is all about? On one side, you might say, I mean, I if, if, if he really is God, I guess it's the only way to go, right? We still have to do it, but is that what this thing, is this, is that how this whole thing ends? Is that all there is to the Christian life? And then all of a sudden what happens is Jesus begins to shine. And this revelation of Christ as glorified and exalted appears to them. And what is that? that that's, it points them to what we all are supposed to be looking to. So when you look throughout history and the, the, the history of the church, and we as a church have faced any number of horrors throughout church history, Nero's garden parties, Bloody Mary's bonfires, Stalin's gulags, right? When you look at the cost of following Jesus throughout history, it can be daunting. Right, we should we shouldn't be so cavalier and saber rattling, right? Be like, oh yeah, man, I'd do any, I'd follow Jesus anywhere. There are terrifying things that that faith can cost us, and yet the transfiguration reminds us of something. It reminded the disciples that there is majesty and glory and a new existence that awaits us. 
and that that glory cannot be compared with any momentary affliction that we deal with here on earth. They look at the glorified Jesus. They stand shoulder to shoulder with the heroes of the faith, right? Who are very real, very much alive. Who are not moldering in the ground, but people standing next to them. And the disciples are minded whose side they're on and who the victory belongs to. And then guess what happens? Just as quick as it all happened, it's all over. Matthew says this, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Again, man, think of that scene. Like, think of like the cloud and the Moses and Elijah and you're in the midst of it and God is speaking to you and you are terrified and you close your eyes and you bow down because, because you know what to do. You know, people in the Old Testament, they see God and they incinerate, you know, or whatever. Like, you don't know. And you close your eyes and you look down and then all of a sudden Jesus walks up and touches you on the shoulder and it's all over. Everything's back to normal. Uh, the cloud's gone and Moses and Elijah are gone and, and the wind is gone and the voice is gone. Everything's just back to normal. And here's what we finally, uh, the last why. This, this glorious mountaintop experience, right, is incredible. But we're not meant to stay there. We're not meant to stay on that mountaintop. Instead, what we find is that God gives that mountaintop experience to sustain the disciples and to sustain us back down in the valley. So there's there's certain segments of, of Christianity that feel like if you are not always on a mountaintop high in the faith, uh, that you really aren't experiencing the Christian life properly. Um, I think part of that comes from our, our desire for pleasure and entertainment and we're, we're sort of obsessed with some of those things in our culture. I think also though, it partly comes from our genuine desire to experience God, right? We want to, we want to experience God in those unique ways, experience his presence. The problem is, is this, we're not made to live, to live on the mountaintops. We don't stay there. Okay. Just think about in real life. What a mountaintop experience is like, right? Some of y'all are hikers. Um, when you go to a, a, a peak somewhere, like I, I like going to Charlie's Bunyan. Every once in a while, I'll get a wild hair and I'll go up to Charlie's Bunyan, which is in in the Smokies. And you kind of come out on this rock outcropping, right? You're sort of out in the middle and there's there's nothing all around you. It's just mountains and, and, and space all around you. You've probably experienced those kind of places too. What, what is it like? It's glorious, right? Majestic. Awe-inspiring. There's a there's a transcendent kind of quality to it. Like you feel like your soul is opening when you're out there on those places, right? That's why people love going on hikes to places like that. But here's probably something that you've not thought of. That same spot that is soul-opening and majestic, it is also desolate, usually. It's exposed. It is inhospitable. You can't stay there. There is grandeur there, but there's not a whole lot of life in those places. That's because life is always down in the valleys. The fields ripe unto harvest are down in the valleys. The fruit that is grown is down in the valleys. The work that is to be done is down in the valleys. And so when we focus on those mountaintops, we become basically like Christian drug addicts. Maybe that's a strong way of saying it. Just trying to drift from one spiritual high to the next, seeking, going wherever, um, doing the next thing, trying to find a spiritual high again. So I can feel like I'm connected. So I can feel that sense of grandeur and, and feel that sense of, of transcendence and connection to God. I think Peter wants that, right? That's why he says this. He says, man, I don't want this to end. Well, let's put up some tents. You guys don't have to go, Moses and Elijah. Why don't you just stay here? Jesus, we can all stay here. God can stay here. 
He can just keep on talking. We can hear his voice and we can just all stay here in this moment and experience this stuff for, for as long as we want to. But the truth is, they're not meant to stay there. The mountaintops are rare. The valleys are common. Christians will spend most of their time in the valleys. Right? Remember last week. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And that doesn't sound like mountaintop living. Okay? That sounds like valley living to me. But here's the deal. So so they're still given that glimpse though. Right? God wants them to glean something in that moment, to learn and remember what we can on the mountaintop and then let us sustain us when we're down in the valley, right? That we remember what happened there and then we bring it with us down to the valley. So when times get tough, when when you want to quit ministry or church or marriage or, or faith or whatever, you can look back and you can say, you know what? I know what I learned on the mountain. I know those things are all still true even though I'm in the valley now. And get this, this is exactly what the disciples say about this experience. This event marks them. And so when we get to the Gospel of John, what does John say at the very beginning of his Gospel? We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Peter is even more explicit. Man, this is a great passage. Like, I, I, and I almost want to take a break next week and just dig into 2 Peter chapter 1 because it's an incredible passage. Listen to what Peter says referencing the transfiguration. 2 Peter chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make all this stuff up. The disciples didn't sit down after the death of Jesus and go, guys, we got to make up a con. we got to make up some sort of system where we can get everybody to believe that Jesus is resurrected. You guys go steal the body. We'll go tell everybody we saw it. We didn't come up with some cleverly contrived myth. Instead, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Okay, Again, is that a resurrection majesty? I don't think so because Jesus just looked like a dude. Okay? We were eyewitnesses to his majesty, just in case we were confused about what he was talking about. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed you would do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Right? That's it. Okay? What does Peter tell us? He says, the whole reason we saw, I mean, goosebumps, the whole reason we saw God's glory on the mountain is so that not only would it sustain us as we are being beat, and in Peter's case, crucified upside down, and in James's case, murdered for the faith, and in John's case, boiled alive and then surviving and exiling. When we were going through all these things, why did Jesus show us this stuff? So that in those times, we would have a light shining in a dismal place. So that no matter what, we could always look back and we could say, Man, this Christian life sure is tough. There's a lot of hard stuff coming. But you know what? Moses and Elijah are alive. They're there with Jesus right now. If we die today for the faith, we're going to be right there just like those two guys are. In the flesh, people talking to him. We're not going to be disembodied spirits, some kind of weird existence. Man, we saw Moses and Elijah. And more than that, we saw Jesus. We saw Jesus' glory emanating from him. That's what we have to look forward to. He wins. This whole thing is already done. All we have to do is stay true until the day dawns, until the morning star arises in our hearts. And so Peter says, you would do well to pay attention to what we are saying. You would do well to pay attention to what we saw and believe our eyewitness testimony because it changes your whole perspective on everything, certainly on taking up your cross and following him daily.
And so as we close tonight, man, I don't, I, that's all there is, right? That's it. Um, there's, I don't, I don't have anything else for you to go. I'm an application piece is this, right? Like that's the application. Okay. Um, that is the piece to say, is it worth it? And the answer is yes. Yeah. But ask, what if it gets really hard? Right. The answer is still yes. Yeah. But what if they come from me and my family? The answer is still yes. Right. It's all worth it. And the second you step into eternity, there won't be a question in your mind that all of it was worth it. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we confess that when we are standing in the shadow of the mountain, in the valley, that we, um, oftentimes it is, it is difficult for us to, to keep our eyes set, to lift our eyes to the hills where our hope comes from, to remember those times, um, that you have shown us yourself in unique ways and to remember the testimony of your saints, um, in your word and throughout church history. God, it is hard in times of difficulty, whether that is personal suffering, um, God, whether that is suffering that is coming from from the outside and in the world or the culture or the government or any of those kind of things. Um, God, it's hard for us to hold on to a vision of you. And yet we pray, God, that you would help us to do that. That in those times of difficulty, in those times of darkness, in those times of tragedy, in those times of loss, in those times of sorrow, God, that you would... God, be a lamp shining in the darkness, that you would be a fixed point that we could focus our eyes on, that we would know that um, no matter the difficulties we experience, God, that you are there at the end of the line, God, that you are what is waiting for us um, when we finally move past the difficulties, when we finally get to the other side of the suffering. God, you are still there. You are still uh, the north um, uh that we are that we are headed towards. You are still the north on the compass, God. That you are um, the goal and the destination. And that you have not moved. Father, help us to hold on to that truth um, as we as we follow you each day. As we try to be faithful, God, not only in the difficult things, but in all the mundanity. God, we we, we know that in the valley, the the, the mundaneness of the work um, can often be just as numbing and dulling to our senses as as persecution and difficulty. So, um, God, just help us to keep our eyes set and focused on you and everything we do. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask these things in the holy and precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
Guys, um, glad you're here, man. It's it's. I've said this the last couple of weeks, but it's it's awesome to be back in in your presence, uh, see your faces, uh, and I'm encouraged by that. Um, here's the benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn His face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.